from Hamlet, Act One, Scene Five. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. This is Gothic. The Gothic Podcast is a horror and humor actual play audio drama. As such, it contains material, including our jokes, that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On a podcast, no one can see you scream. (gasps) That's right, Sojourners. Tonight, we begin in earnest, Season 3 of the Gothic Podcast, and the book that we have entered uses the alien RPG rules. So, that's what we're going to be playing this evening and throughout much of Season 3. And tonight, we have three tales for you from the depths of space. In our first, we find ourselves in the vastness of space, stars twinkling like Glitter strewn across a black velvet background, and against that backdrop, a small vessel, a rather battered craft, blocky, long, the deep space salvage vessel Pescado Malmo. <laughs> Registration number 3202201, brackets 05. On board, there is silence for a while. But as our camera looks over the dark and empty bridge, the dark hallway lined with staterooms, the crew mess, the med bay, wait, there in the med bay, lights are beginning to come on. There in the stasis pods, our crew begins to awaken. First is the captain of the Pescado Malo. Captain Moses Franks. He gets up, yawns, stretches, looks around, notices that everything seems to be coming on properly as the lights in the room begin to illuminate brighter, showing us that the med bay is clean, organized, tidy as a a room on such a spacecraft can be. Moses gets up out of the stasis pod. These are arranged in a circle around a central control device. He, being the first one up, is also the most used to traveling in this method. He has been captain of the Pescado Malo for some time. He runs fingers through his curly hair, scratches at his nose, rubs his eyes, and then heads to his locker. Next to awaken is the medical officer, Carla Shaw. Uh, She is in her late 30s. She has short, cropped hair and also spends some time yawning and stretching until she gets out of her pod and heads over to her own locker, glancing at the captain and nodding on her way, but saying nothing. Soon, all of the crew has woken from stasis. Let's meet the rest of them, shall we? 
either as they awaken or somewhere else on the ship. Where are we going to first meet? How about our chief engineer, Patience? Patience hauls themselves up out of the pod uh, just about as early as possible. Does a couple of, you know, kind of peremptory stretches as if she, as if they're not really paying attention. And just immediately goes over to all the uh, monitoring stations, make sure everything is functioning in the uh, in the room with the uh, hypersleep pods. And then, uh, you know, as soon as their quick glance has confirmed that everything looks to be normal, heads off to check on the status of the engines and, uh, you know, run a quick, you know, self-diagnostic on the uh, computer core. How about one of our roughnecks, Bosco? Bosco's a big fella. So as he wakes up, he wakes up slowly, gives himself a big, long stretch. Oh, shakes off the sleep. Looks like the kind of guy that maybe played sports, maybe football about 20 years ago and probably 40 pounds ago, but doesn't get in a big hurry to get out and do anything. He kind of looks around to see what the others are doing as they busy themselves and slowly finds his way over to a workstation and starts tapping around like he's doing something important, but but not really. He's got all the time in the world. The ship's been running this long, just fine on its own. Not like they need old Bosco to do anything to it. Just let's just check some stuff out and make sure to look busy in front of the, the captain. Let's also find out about our other roughneck, one Brad Larson. Ever everything okay? Um, yeah. I need to uh I need to go to the bathroom. And he r- runs off into uh, the, the nearest uh, lavatory that uh, he can get to. As he as he comes back out, sorry uh, about that, y'all. I just, uh, I just think that uh, all of this uh, sleeping, I think it has got, gotten to m- m- me. It's a big guy. Uh, you can tell he's got some kind of speech impediment. Uh, he's from the Deep South. There's only one more member of the crew, the ship's pilot, Javier Janus. Uh, but Javier's pod doesn't open. In fact, there is a red light pinging on that particular pod. The medical officer did not note that initially, but now that it is uh, still going, and now that she has put on her uh, jumpsuit, with the uh, name of the ship emblazoned on it in red lettering, embroidered, of course. Um, She hurries over to that and begins reading vital signs. Captain, captain, she says. Javier's not not responding to um, the the wake-up drugs. What do the rest of you do while this little emergency is going on? I would have, I think, uh, noted that, you know, if I'd, you know, having done a quick checkup on the, uh, you know, monitoring screens and stuff before I ran out to, you know, check up on the engines and stuff. So I probably came back in and I'm just going to run a quick diagnostic on the system, make sure it's not a computer error. Uh, You do so. Now, in the Alien RPG, it is recommended that we don't do rolls very often. Uh, However, there are some cases where it is important uh, under stressful situations. Uh, that uh, you might need to roll to apply some of your knowledge. And so that we just get a feel for how this uh, game works, too. Uh, let's go ahead and have you roll, Patience. Okay. What ability, what skill would you be using for this? 
uh, probably Comtech, right? I believe so. And so now uh, you are going to be choosing a number of base dice from your collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many of those are you going to be rolling? Uh, is that my wits base? So it is based off of your primary attribute plus the uh, score in Comtech itself. So it's math. The base number is the one by wits here on the character sheet, and then the additional one is uh, is under Comtech, right? Or the other way around. But yes, those are the those two add together okay. to give you your All right. uh ten dice that I'm rolling today. That is quite a It's few. a lot. It's a lot of dice for me. I rolled two sixes and no ones. Uh, this is not ten candles. You don't necessarily have to worry about the ones. Uh, not until we are dealing with your stress die. You'll notice that your base die have targets on them, plus regular numbers if you want to use them as regular six-siders. And you are looking for that target to come up, uh, which it did twice for you. Yeah. If later on we wind up with uh, some stress die that you need to roll, then there is another option, and it's a fa- alien face hugger on the one's spot on the die. On the stress die, Which right? Which count as failures. Uh, on the stress die only, yes. And if those <laughs> come up, then we have to worry about stress. Bad stuff. Bad stuff happened. But that didn't happen this time. So with Comtech, you have uh, you only needed one success to okay. have a success, but you have two. So that means that you get some bonus stuff you can do. Oh, I see. For each extra six rolled beyond the first, choose one stun of applicable situation. So does Comtech have anything else you'd like to, any um, stunts that you would like to add on? One of the stunts that you can pick is you show off, which is pretty funny, but I don't think would be in Patience's character. I think that uh, the stunt I'm going to pick is you don't need to roll to overcome the exact same challenge in the future. So if I'm running a diagnostic on a hypersleep pod, I don't have to roll it. That sounds lovely. You're checking over the system and... Yes, there is a glitch in there, Mm. and it just kicked on just a few moments ago, just as the pod was about to open. And it appears from your diagnostics that you're currently doing that the reason that Javier isn't waking up from the drugs is that they are not being piped into him. There is a blockage in the system somewhere. Like a physical blockage, it indicates? Uh, Could be, or could be a break. If so, it had to have happened in the last just couple of moments. While I was out of the room. Ooh. Well, I'll um, convey that information. There's a break in the system somewhere in the piping of the the wake-up drugs. Carla says, I don't don't know what to do about that. And the captain, Moses, he goes, "Uh, well, patients, can you fix it? Of course I can. Do everything on this ship, and I'll go over to the, you know, whatever the uh, 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 panel side of the hypersleep pod looks like, and take the, you know, take it up, take the hood up, as it were. So all of these pods uh, look essentially like glass-topped coffins, circular, so they're more, you know, really more torpedo shape than coffin shape, but still, a lot of uh, spacers call them coffins, mm-hmm. and they all are attached to a central column uh, like petals on a stem of a flower. A slight angle angling down to, from the central column 
to the floor of the uh, med bay. So yes, there is uh, paneling along the side of the torpedo that you can unbolt quickly. Do you have some devicey that you use for that? Um, let me see. This is an everything screwdriver. <laughs> That'd be cool. A sonic screwdriver. I. <laughs> it's a sonic I have screwdriver. a sonic screwdriver. Um, can I say that uh, Lars has left that area at the moment and in search of something? So yeah, so it's going to take it's going to take patience a few moments and a bit of patience to get <laughs> into the system. The problem being that it's not just a matter of oh well he's just going to sleep for a while longer. If this doesn't work, if it can't be fixed, then he can't be woken up, and there is a good chance that he will die in the pod as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if the system has started the process but not finished it. That is uh, a little bit harder to tell from just looking at the diagnostics. So as Patience works on that, uh, we will follow Brad Larson. Um, I, I, see, I see Lars making his way to uh, the repair supplies, things like the bolt guns and the whole repair and plasma cutters and the like, and grabs the the thing that he knows can cut through any uh, shielding that's around uh, the sleep pods and just picking it up and walking back in. His focus is trying to get Javier out of the sleep pod. It won't take you very long, but probably enough time that patients will have gotten the paneling off of the side and has now exposed the wiring within. Ah. Uh, Mr. Larson, are you going to just stride over and start cutting through the uh, protective glass above Javier, or...? Not necessarily. It, it comes back in. If we need to open it, I, I, I can I can do it. Um, if you can get him the medicines he needs. I've opened the paneling. You mean open the lid? The lid to the, the, lid to the pod? Do we need to get Javier out of there? Could be dangerous to get him out without the drugs. And I look up to the doctor or to the medic. The doc nods and says, "Yeah, it's uh, it's a dangerous process. I um, I'll, I'll go see if I can find some some backups uh, just in case. It, it would be it's very risky, but um, yeah, I mean, if you can't get it to to operate, then then we can try that." Cap. Uh, not yet, son. Yes, sir. Patience. How's it coming? <laughs> uh yeah, I want to kind of dig around in the in the tubing in there and make sure that the tubing is like all the connections are sol- you know, secure and nothing's kinked anywhere and uh nothing's cracked or dripping. In other words, you're trying to fix it. Yes. Uh well, despite the admonition of the book, let's make that a roll. Oh. Because this is, you know, dangerous stuff is happening. Okay, what role is this? Would it be Comtech again? Comtech kind of specifies like you're looking at code and computer systems, like programming. Uh, mm. Would this fall under the category of repairing machinery? It would for yes. a heavy machinery. Okay, okay, all right. You uh, you need to handle that. No, I. There's not enough space in here for two of us, Bosco. I have another two sixes. Very good. What's going to be your your stunt? Uh, let me read them all. 
let's do, uh, for this stint, gain a plus one modification to a later skill roll relating to this one. So if I have to roll a third time to wake up our dear pilot, uh, then I'll have a, <laughs> an extra dice. The captain says to Bosco, uh, Bosco, uh, can you run up to the bridge and uh, make sure that uh, all, the, uh, all the systems are good to go there? And if anybody were paying attention to what Bosco was doing uh, while all this drama was happening, you didn't notice that he's actually uh, looking at personnel files to see who else is qualified to pilot the ship, hoping, hoping that it's not him. <laughs> so when the captain uh, orders him to the bridge, you, you kind of see his shoulders slump and he goes, oh, well, hell. And uh, he, he shuffles off towards the bridge to uh, see what he can do about the situation they're in and maybe kind of get some stuff right. He's not real excited about it. Bosco heads down the long, dimly lit corridors of uh, Pescado Malo and uh, eventually goes through the open hatchway that leads into the bridge of the salvage vessel. And there are a couple of pilot seats up there with good lumbar support and a lot of buttons and switches and toggles and keyboards, and levers, and all sorts of complex piloty type things. All of these are blinking in a reasonable facsimile of a Christmas tree <laughs> all over them, but nothing <laughs> blinking too much in the way of red, which is a good sign. Uh, but of course, the other thing that you see, Bosco, as you come out there, is space. Uh, through the wraparound glass of the of the uh, in front of the pilot's chairs. It is just the vastness, vast emptiness of space, but all of those lights sparking out there, billions upon billions of stars. Don't know how you feel about space, but there it is. Well, Oscar's seen space before, so although it's all purdy and stuff, it's nothing special. However, the lumbar support in this chair is really good. Oscar takes a moment to look at all them blinky lights, not really certain what to do about those, but he's going to take a moment and enjoy this comfortable chair. And then he starts trying to think through the vast emptiness of his mind and uh, hope, hopefully remember <laughs> what some of those blinky lights do and uh, start <laughs> flipping some of them uh, little switches, see if he can remember how to make a ship go. Let's go ahead and roll a piloting. And here we go. Oh, hey, that's actually a pretty good roll there. I got two sixes off of that and not nice. a lot of dice. So yeah, uh, you're able to quickly remember uh, everything. It's almost as if you were dreaming about it. And at that moment, you do have a just a momentary recollection of your dream. In fact, all of you had this in your dreams. It was just a just a flash in your dreams before you wake up in the cryo chambers of a different place, a library of a world of magic. Of a woman, a woman's voice, anyway, saying, wait, no, something's wrong. No, come back. Oh, no. And then you woke up and the dream fades quickly. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, Bosco, you, you remember nearly everything and you immediately notice that the readouts saying what your original destination was and where you're now headed are different. The ship's course has been altered. Hmm. 
Since I did get two stunt dice on that, Bosco's going to use both of those stunt dice to show off. So when he goes to... You got three sixes? Uh, to, oh, you use the extra one. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. So he's, well, still he's going to show off with the extra die. And, you know, he stops, he looks out, and he starts seemingly flipping switches and hitting buttons at random. Uh, and then suddenly all the lights turn the right color, and he sits back like he meant to do that, was imp- <laughs> impressed with how well he did, and then looks around and realizes there was nobody there to see how good he was. Uh, well, hell. And that's when he realizes that uh, everything's right, except for the course. Because it wasn't immediately obvious, because once again, pretty much everything was right. Uh, so all the lights were, were the right color, the switches the right direction, except for the destination was just wrong. So for the first time, Bosco really does look out at the stars, and wonders, and ponders, where in the hell are we? Back in the med chamber, you see what the problem is. And you quickly um, reroute the electrical systems, which aren't powering the injectors. And the light goes off on Javier's pod. And within a few moments, there is a hiss as the glass top raises up. And then Javier is getting out of his pod. He immediately begins to cough and choke a bit and then throws up on the floor. Ah! Typical. All the things I get around here. I'll put the uh, casing back on the uh, control panel of the pod. The captain goes over to an intership uh, comm system and presses the button. This is a wall-mounted uh, intercom, and he speaks into it. Bosco, uh, what uh, what's it look like up there? Looks like a bridge. That's great, Bosco. <laughs> uh, is everything good, or are there problems? What, what are we Not what are the we ship's all, uh, well, ship shape, I guess you could say. Everything's just right. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe one little detail. Uh, how, how's the pilot doing, by the way? Uh, waking up now. Looks like he's... And he looks over at, oh. um, at the uh, dock, and uh, she's examining Javier, and she nods to him. Yeah, it looks like uh, he's going to be okay. Oh, thank the stars, because we're going to need him. Why is that, Bosco? Well, uh, we ain't where we're supposed to be. I'll be right up. And on that... Let's shift scenes, shall we? Let's go to another place in space. But now we are in orbit around a gas giant. It's red and blue and yellow cloud formations creating a very colorful backdrop uh, lit as it is by the sun and reflecting then back onto a space station. A very complex-looking space station, large, with several looping hoops of living spaces that turn slowly as it spins in sync with the gas giant. This is Wednesday Station. It has a large central structure area in the middle of all of the rings, and there we see from our outside vantage point uh, a large dome of glass surrounded by a smattering of others. And we see green within that, although there is also fogging on the glass, so it's difficult to see for sure. But our camera view speeds down toward Wednesday Station and inside to where there aren't all that many windows. But there are long corridors. There are hissing steam pipes. There are 
sections where there's graffiti on the walls. This was once a scientific research station operated by Sojourner Unlimited Corporation, but now it is operated by private concerns. Let us wheel around the inside of Wednesday Station and meet our, well, some of our players on this particular stage. Let's start with Axel Jasons. What do we see? Okay, you actually see a a, a quite young chipper lad uh, just running through uh, the alleyways and uh, the tunnels of um, the space station. He's uh, heading towards uh, one of his favorite places to stop for a treat, um, uh, where Jules cooks up the, the most wonderful treats. And he always makes sure and takes some back to some of the other fellow kids that uh, kind of like live in the Warrens and just kind of feed off of the excitement that goes on with all of the wonderful travelers that come through the station. As young Axel runs into the commissary area of the space station, a bustling space, large, numerous tables of the uh, plastic and seemingly unstable variety placed around the room, but bolted to the floor, of course, uh, just in case there is a problem with the gravity. The smell of food hangs uh, thick in the air. There are a number of people here eating and talking. The noise level is a gentle rumble, essentially, of boisterous communication. And back at the back end of this commissary area is a large curving bar, essentially, where the residents of Wednesday Station can come and get their food a la carte. And behind that is an open space going into the kitchen. And thereabouts, we see the chef, the main chef for Wednesday Station, one Jules Chilton. When you see Jules, she's a, say, middle-aged lady, but she's starting to be on the downhill slide of that over the hill. And uh, she knows it, but seems to cherish it just the same. As the camera looks up, she gives you a big hello. It's a little soon for lunch, but I've made a wonderful four-cheese macaroni. It's not real cheese, of course, but it's all about the flavor. You'll love it, I'm sure. Then our camera spins off, and it finds Maisie Marlowe. Uh, Maisie, having just been uh, kind of knocked to the side by Axel's swift passage, raises her stick and kind of goes, You watch where you're going, young man. Sorry about that, Maisie. I told you once, I've told you a hundred times. Yeah, and he's already out of earshot <laughs> at that point. <laughs> she's She's got kind of a drab uh, shawl, which is draped over her shoulders, uh, which are hunched uh, as she tries to make her way up the, you know, there's like four steps, not enough to be a full staircase, but just like a little bit of an entranceway. She's kind of like fumbling the cane from hand to hand as she tries to get a hand around the railing. Um, she's got thick salt and pepper hair and one of these little bucket hats with daisies on it that's uh, uh, around the uh, hat band. Oh, I'm struggling so hard to get up these stairs. Well, hello. If it isn't amazing, considering you're the slowest one on the station, your timing is impeccable. You're always the first in line. You know, I can't miss any of your meals, Jules, terrible as they are. Oh, my. Oh, my. For being so terrible, you're always so 
punctual. What else has an old lady to do around here? Apparently nothing. Uh, you gotta get a chat all day, or get some uh, get some chow here. Well, if it's up to Maisie, you'd be chatting. But come on over if you can get her out of your way long enough. I start shuffling very slowly towards the counter. The burly guy pushes past Maisie and gets some food, oh! and then heads on his way. Where are you headed, Axel? Uh, Axel is just kind of like doing his morning routine, uh, and he's just. He's just checking in with all of his his friends and making sure that everybody's uh, up and running and and kind of a nosy busybody. Uh, he just is just making sure that, of course, Jules opens shop on time and Maisie's always where she seems to be and and um, keeping an eye out for for the commander and also the uh, the the science officer and just kind of avoiding them, bouncing around from place to place. Asks Jules for some. If if she has some extra muffins from the previous day that she can spare for some of the other orphans. Yeah, the commander of the station, Commander Luther Wiscombe, uh, is not often seen in the commissary. Uh, his meals are generally delivered to uh, his stateroom or to the officer's mess, which is also where the chief science officer would tend to eat. Uh, but hardly anyone ever sees the chief science officer. Uh, Jacob. Chauncer. But who you do see, Axel, is one of your young friends. Uh, there are more than a few orphans on board the space station. It is large enough that uh, once it became private, uh, privately owned and operated, there are a number of residents on board who their jobs are unknown at best, questionable perhaps at worst. Wednesday Station is a way station of sorts. A fair bit of trade deals happen here in sometimes the open and sometimes in the shadows. It's also because this was once a Sojourner Corporation vessel. There has been a lot of decommissioned uh, material here, and there are rumors of labs and such that haven't been found or decommissioned fully. But in any case, for whatever reason, there are more than a few children that live on board, some with parents, but some without. And one of those, of the latter, is uh, one of your good friends, Axel, uh, a girl named Cooper. And uh, she has bobbed blonde hair, and uh, she likes to wear a, a mask, like just across her eyes. She likes to pretend that she's a superhero. You see her having just come in on the far side of the commissary. There are numerous entrances and exits to the commissary area. It's the main meeting place for the residents, anyway, if not the passers-by who just visit the space station for a few days or uh, weeks. And uh, she looks unhappy, nervous, and she motions for you to come to her. Cooper, hey, what's going on today? Hey, Axel, um, it's happened again. Did it? And you know what she's talking about, because some of the kids have gone missing. Now, this isn't completely out of the realm of, of the normal. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, kids get sidetracked doing other things on the ship. But there have been a couple of kids that you were used to seeing who you haven't. This would be the third who has gone 
missing in that way. If, if Cooper is right, if she's not just overreacting, she's only about eight, after all. Who was it, Cooper? It was Aaron. Do you know what happened? When was the last time he was seen? He, he, was, he was down um, the, the central east wing, um, you know, the, the dark passages, and uh, it was playing with, uh, um, um, you know, uh, uh, Vince and, and, uh, and Bill. And, uh, Have well, you talked to Vince and Bill? Do they know anything? Well, they're, they're, the, they're the ones who said, uh, they, they, like, he went, he went a little further than they did, and then, and then he just didn't come back, they said. I, I, I mean, he just, they, they got scared, but, I mean, maybe he's playing a game. I don't, but, you know, I mean, with the others. Cooper, just, will you do me a favor? Tell the others to stay away from the dark passage. I'll see if I can find out well, anything. I mean, I, 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 I don't, nobody's going to listen to me. At least the other kids will. You're a smart cookie. Yeah, they love me. You're smart. And you've got a heart of gold. I mean, just because I'm a little bit older, you think they listen to me any better than what you say? Uh, y- yeah. Well, that's just nonsense. Everybody knows you've got a good head on your shoulders. If you tell them to stay away from the dark passage, and you can even let them know that I said so as well, that I'm going looking for Erin, I think they'll listen. I'll let you do the first roll here of the uh, Wednesday Station crew. Um, go ahead and give us a manipulation. Manipulation? Oh, boy. <laughs> Remember, if you don't have it, then you uh, you can roll the base. Yeah, I just roll my empathy if I don't have any in, manip- in manipulation. Uh, that is one success. Oh, well, there you go. She goes, uh, I'll try. And uh, she runs off. Uh, and then I head off to uh, the Central East Dark Passage. Would either Maisie or Jules have noticed this exchange? Maisie might have. Uh, Jules is, uh, she's in many things, but uh, everybody knows her as a good listener. She seems to pick up on a lot. Jules, I mean, you're busy, of course, but you did see this kind of strange exchange. I mean, you're used to seeing kids, you know, doing their kid things, but... This exchange by the door between Axel, who is a bit of a character, and he's often underfoot. But this exchange he was having with some little blonde girl it was, seemed a little bit more stressed or heated. Maisie, you may even have overheard part of it. I would say that probably Jules could not from, from the perch behind the uh, very busy and noisy buffet bar. But, but Maisie you know, having taken her tray and moved off a ways, may have uh, even overheard. Yeah, Maisie has frequented some of the, you know, less traveled passageways that the kids tend to use, and might even know, like, what section of the station that they're referring to. Yeah, there are a lot of places in the the station, despite the number of people, uh, there's probably close to 300 people on board. Mm Mm-hmm. But even so, the originals, the original research vessel, when it was in full operation, had close to 800 scientists living on board. Oh, so there's like a lot of empty space. There is a lot of empty space. Oh, 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 that's good news for me. No one has to worry about finding a stateroom. Ostensibly, you have to check in with the purser uh, when you arrive and you're assigned a space, but a lot of people go switching around, and it's not unheard of for a spacer to come in and uh, be assigned a 
a birthing and for them to go there, open the door and find a family of six living there and having lived there for like 10 years. Excellent. I mean, uh, isn't it terrible, these squatters? Mm. <laughs> Although the little girl has headed off um, running in a slightly different direction, Axel appears to be headed toward uh, some of the dark corridors, as he called them. Did you say uh, in the east wing is where that is? Uh, Central East Corridors. Directions here are, of course, somewhat arbitrary. Arbitrary. (laughs) Central would mean some of the spokes that lead in toward the main main bulk of the station. Okay. Is there a reference point, like, where we we call it the East Tunnel because, like, the command station is in the north or anything like that? If you were to look straight down upon the station from above, looking down at the uh, at those big domes that we saw in our intro to this, then planet word would be Sal, actually. Okay. Anti-planet word would be north, and then east and west would be aligned along those lines. And then there is also upward and downward. Upward, which doesn't necessarily go along with the gravity on the ship, but um, again, looking at it from... Uh, from above would be the dome side, and then downward mm. would be the anti-dome side. Gotcha. <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> oh, pardon me, a little old lady. <laughs> well, Maisie, you're going to have to make your choice here shortly, because Axel, are you speeding on your way, or are you meandering? What are you doing, Axel? Uh, you're, right now, you're just leaving the leaving the commissary. As Axel makes his way around, uh, he's not in a big rush. And if he does see any of the other children or orphans around, then he would tell them to, you know, he would mention to stay away from the the Central East Dock Passage again. But not being lazy, but also not running towards the Central East uh, Dock Passages. I don't think Maisie would follow or try to stop Axel from going down there, but I would probably go take a look around on my own time. In the meantime, I'm going to finish my lunch. Jules? Continuing about your business? Well, of course, there's so many hungry mouths to feed, and I've made so much food. It, it, it'd be a shame if it, if it was left over and go to waste. You know, it's so hard to keep it fresh here in the station. Axel, you find yourself, eventually, down in the dark passages, so-called, because the electricity has never worked right in this area. There are other places on the station where that's the case, but uh, th- this is more or less uh, permanent. Some engineers have occasionally come down here, but the wiring is so messed up in this area that it's just not worth it to try to repair them. And the spin rings out toward the eastern side are mostly unoccupied, as far as anybody knows. It's just not one of the more populated rings. And it is also, therefore, kind of a favorite place for the kids to play, especially hide-and-seek stuff, which perhaps is what you are thinking has happened down here. What do you do? With a, even with a bit of precaution, as I as I start to step down these corridors, um, I think that uh, just trying to keep a really good eye out and listen for any noises uh, out of the ordinary space, creaks and buzzing, and um, just just looking for any other sound that I might hear of other children, and I'd even call out, "Aaron!" Probably hear an echo back. Your voice does echo in these spaces. These are not 
huge spaces, but they are primary conduits, and so they aren't particularly narrow. Uh, There are narrow passages off of them, uh, maintenance shafts, ventilation ducts, piping runs as well. A lot of the piping is exposed. Um, Here, occasional blats of steam will burst free of uh, valves or from cracks in the system. Uh, Sparks will fly from some of the wiring. Uh, The whole corridor here is maybe 15 feet across tops, uh, wide enough for a couple of people to pass easily, usually pushing some sort of cart, as would have happened back in the day. Uh, The lighting is fitful, but it is quiet here, except for the sound of the buzzing of the lights occasionally and the sparking of the occasional open wire. And the hiss of the steam. Yeah, Axel would continue on and look for any signs of where these children could have been playing. Like if they were in the middle of a game of jacks or something in the hall. um, Just looking for any sign. Give me an observation roll. Observation? That's a good one for me. Seven, three successes. Nice. As you are proceeding down corridor, you're maybe a third of the way down the length, and you've already passed several open hatches, accesses to other tunnels, or some of that ductwork I mentioned before. But you see something next to one of these open hatches. You see a stain on the the lintel around the opening. I would reach out and run my fingers through it. It comes away red. Do that maneuvering between thumb and, and finger to like kind of like test the viscosity of it. It is, uh, to your practiced eye, with easy confirmation, blood. And in fact, the pattern that it makes there on the side of the of that opening is almost as if a hand had gripped at the metal there and then been pulled through. Do you do anything with your stunts? Uh, The talents? The stunts are like if you roll more than one six, you get to use the extra sixes. Oh, under observation. Oh, crap. So some of the stunts for um, observation are, uh, you get to know the answer to one of these questions. Uh, Is it coming for me? Are there more of them close by? Uh, How do I get in past away? Those are really quite specific. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Are there more of them close by? Do I see a trail? Is it leading further in? Do I know the direction? Do you have any sort of light source here? I have... Oh, I have a laser pen. For the cats. It would be really exciting to try and uh, navigate by laser pen through dark tunnels. But even as you are trying to find your laser pen in the hopes that it will provide some illumination, lights flicker on and off and on and off in the access tunnel that you are peering into, and you do see, indeed, more blood splatters. I follow the trail. Uh, Let us leave Axel for a moment and go back to the commissary where Maisie has finished her meal and, in fact, as this particular eating shift is coming to an end, your sous chefs, Jules, Usually take it from here if you had something else you wanted to do. Or, of course, you could stay and maintain your reign over the kitchen. Oh, goodness, no, the work is done. Now it's time for fun. Have a little free time <laughs> before I have to start dinner. Jules walks into the back of the, the 
kitchen area into a spot that's a little out of sight. You see her take off her apron, fold it, and put it away, and there's a little terminal there. And you see her kind of access the terminal. It seems very nonchalant. It seems uh, very typical, almost ordinary. And the camera's going to pan around a little. And you see her look over her shoulder, make sure nobody's looking. She enters in a code. And up on the screen, you see some blips. And you realize that there's a map of the station kind of overlaid. And you see the blips in an area that doesn't have any labels. And you see Jules' face look very worried and concerned. Makes a couple of notes on a little uh, on the bottom of the screen types them in, and then scurries off to check on something, uh, surprisingly in a hurry, more so than normal. And let us use that as our segue to our third story of the night, as we go spinning off through space again, and our camera this time finds a planet. In orbit around the planet is a large USMC troop carrier, almost like a vast gun in space in orbit around the planet. The planet itself, though, is not normal. And on our visual of this, a uh, classification comes up, and we see that this is Trakai, a class in coreless planet. Atmosphere is nitrogen heavy, requires acclimatizing or breathers to operate on the surface. The gravity is 0.8 g's, even though the planet itself is larger than Earth norm. This is because it is indeed coreless, but even more so than what that technical designation means in all of the manuals. (laughs) This planet is in layers, like a weave, like one of those one of those artsy straw weave balls <laughs> that you can get at the craft store. Or like a Fabergé egg, Trakai is made up of layers of carved away surface and mantle. And our camera goes down, as those words go away from our screen, goes down past the massive troop carrier that we see is called the Wapati, and goes down to one of the secondary levels of land bands, I guess is the best way to call them. As we go down, we see that some of the upper bands, there is greenery on there. There is forest and trees, hills, uh, water, water that drains off of the side of a higher level and down is a huge waterfall falling hundreds and hundreds of feet to the next level down, but with great openings between where you can see a sky that is blue filled with clouds in parts. Deeper, we see colder regions in the distance. We see icy landscapes, but before we get there, we stop and we find ourselves at a central band. We see a camp. There is a landing shuttle surrounded by large uh, enclosed pavilion tents sealed against the atmosphere. Even though the atmosphere is breathable, it is just more comfortable inside the pressurized tents. There is a fair bit of activity in this area, uh, samples being taken by uh, several teams. But we go past this makeshift base. 
obviously temporary. It hasn't been there for very long. And we speed along through a copse of trees, strange shaped, they too growing in multiple layers, like mushrooms stacked on top of one another. And we pass that and come to a rocky section cleared of everything except for lichen by winds that blow across the band here. And there we see a small group of trekkers. And these trekkers are led by the expedition's chief scientist, uh, one Dr. Wick, who is wearing an environmental suit of all white, with Wick proudly emblazoned on the breast of it. He is only wearing a breather, and his short, combed-back hair uh, is slick to his head. He strides forward purposefully, followed by a few others. There is, in this group, a couple of marines, one of which stands out above the others, uh, Wild Bill Hicks. What do we see? And the reason he's very recognizable is because Bill looks like a marine. He's got the crew cut, you know, he's got the, the chiseled jaw, even though his mouth has this look. He holds it not quite uh, the way you'd expect, almost like he's expecting a joke or he just told a joke at every moment, although clearly there's nothing funny that comes out of his mouth on a regular basis. He's got the, the build of a Marine. He's muscled but not bulked. He's lean, you know, very agile looking. Of course, he's also wearing the fatigues that mark him clearly as a Marine. So as he walks across the landscape, he doesn't walk the way you'd expect a Marine to walk, or not entirely. He does seem to be paying attention, but instead of being very rigid, very perceptive, he's almost lackadaisical in the way that he kind of walks along and uh, has, a, has a strange odd gait. And when he looks around, it looks like less he's looking for danger and more like he's looking for anything interesting. Man, what are we doing out here, man? Like, this place is, there's nothing here. It's just another rock. Bro, what are you talking about? This place is beautiful. You don't appreciate the worlds that we land on, man. Come on, man. They all look the same. And that last would be from uh, one of the other members of the Marine team, uh, the Marines medic, one of the four Marines who are out with Dr. Wick and uh, another of the scientists from the, uh, from the group. But we'll go meet her in just a few moments. Um, <laughs> let's find out about... Oh, me, uh, Ray. Ray is my name, and uh, uh, yeah, Ray is the uh, medic of the um, marine detachment that's been attached to this uh, particular doctor. He, unlike Wild Bill, is heavily muscled. He's one of these, um, you know, big, like, biceps looking like beach balls kind of dudes, broad in the shoulders, narrow in the waist, uh, long torso, and long hair. He's got this long, dark brown, curly hair that just flows in the wind, and a big, big white grin that he just flashes around at everything. He is dressed identically to the other Marines, except for his uh, medic's markings, and uh, he has a turquoise bandana uh, wrapped around his head like a headband. And he's strolling along like like Timon and Pumbaa and Simba across the log in The Lion King, just like real big, like happy, smiling around at everything up at the uh, Stone arches overhead. Uh, Ray, are you, um, did you acclimatize or are you wearing a breather? 
Oh yeah, me and Bill, we um, we uh, one of the things you know, we like to have our little challenges with each other, and we uh, uh challenge each other to acclimatize the planet. And man, I just feel like it's the most beautiful day right now. And uh, what about you, Bill? Uh, obviously, climatized. I mean, come on, man, a rock's a rock. You know, you breathe here, you breathe there. It's just another rock. Babysitting this egghead? Come on, man, that's no fun at all. Oh, look, man, no, look at the the rock formation over there. Look at the way the wind's carved it, man. Man, it's just a rock, man. It looks like an eagle. When are we going to get to shoot something? This is so... Oh, dude, we get to shoot stuff all the time. Look, you never see stuff like this. There's an arch above our head with a whole forest on a waterfall coming down. How many times have you seen that? Oh, I'm sorry, I drifted off. Are you still talking about the rock? Come on, man. <laughs> oh, dude, you don't have to pay attention to anything. What? And, and you can see when he says that, clearly, uh, he was being sarcastic. <laughs> Bill and Ray have attempted to acclimatize to Trakai. So uh, let's go ahead and have uh, you both roll Woo. your stamina. Whichever one of you wins by more successes <laughs> is going to be better at it than the other one. I only got one success. I got two. Man, I got a whole lot of fives, though. <laughs> We're on runners up. So both of you have acclimatized uh, to this uh, this level, at least. Now, the scientists tell you that uh, if you all change levels, and there, is, there are definitely plans to do so, because the purpose of this uh, research mission is to, well, take samples from a variety of levels of this weird planet and try to figure out how it came to be created. But of course, that doesn't really interest, well, certainly not Bill, uh, but it is certainly of interest to another member of our trekking group here, Dr. Laura Angels. What do we see with Dr. Laura Angels? With Dr. Laura Angels, you see her, uh, a very, very mousy type uh, woman. Um, she has so many pack, like, she's got this giant backpack with all of these tubes and collection gear, but she walks around with um, a, a uh, camera in one hand taking pictures and um, one of the uh, diagnostic devices in another, and she's just trying to constantly take pictures um and she rushes up dr rick dr rick when do we get to take the samples i love her well angels we're going to stop soon it's good it's true i've got a place up here in mind and we're going to take samples there have you seen any life forms that are not plant-based anything a worm even have your have your scanners seen anything i have not let me check again sir um and, like, I punch in a couple of things on, and almost, like, drop the camera, but at the same time, like, sweep my hand under and catch it really quick and stick it under my armpit and, like, start punching in on the diagnostic device again. Roll Comtech. Comtech. Oh, yeah, that's a good ring. Yeah. Uh, five plus three. That is only one success. Uh, yeah, so far, everything is just uh, coming up plant-based. Everything is just flourishing off of the high nitrogen content in the air. Dr. Wick, it only appears to be plant-based in this area. Are we pressing forth? And at this point, you see her grab her oxygen mask from around her side and almost drop her camera again, but catches it, like, with her elbow and, like, takes the mask and puts it on her face because she's not fully climatized yet. 
and tucks it back into a side pouch. You, Doctor, you should, um, you should wear that all the time. I mean, we are going to be changing levels soon, so... Understood, Dr. Wick, and she pulls it out again and, like, tries to, like, manage the elastic band around her head <laughs> as she's holding on to all this other stuff in her hands and has all this other science equipment, like, draped over her shoulders and around her belt and everything. Oh, 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 here, you hooked on one of these tubes. Here, let me get it free. Oh, here, there we go. Thank you, Ray. You are always so kind to me. Oh, you're welcome, Doc. I was like, hey, uh, Doc, uh, you, you know... You can get yourself, like, a better sling for that camera or something. You know, if you get one of those like we have here for our pulse rifle, you could just, uh, uh, man, come on, you know, you just, like, sling that camera around, man. Or maybe I could use my shoelace. And I, like, bend over <laughs> and try and start, like, pulling off my shoelace, but, like, things fall over the top of my head and I start picking them back up instead. Don't you, uh, don't you need your, your uh, shoelaces for your shoe, though? You're right. Dr. Wick, shall we press on? You continue forward. And you get past this rocky area and uh, start passing by a section of uh, those trees again. Uh, it appears that Dr. Wick is actually angling for an edge of one of these sections. Uh, he has said that he wanted to take some 3D modeling of the, uh, of the uh, way that the actual edges seem to form, but he also has some hope that uh, there will be a differing life form profile on the side of the on the side of the level, uh, some of which are hundreds and hundreds of feet thick, and he is moving with a single-minded purpose. And so, Bill, give me an observation roll. Oh wow! I managed to get two successes again. Nice. Uh, do you have any stunts you want to do with that one? So no, I won't. I won't use a stunt. Bill, you see movement. Not the movement of the wind as it was sweeping across uh, the wind-smoothed rocks of the section of landscape that you have just been traversing uh, with its strange uh, shapes of, of rock formations, uh, some towering three, four times higher than you all passing by. And, Bill, you see movement at the uh, midsection of one of the trees. Uh, Bill and Ray are walking along here, kind of having their, their little bantering moments. You know, obviously, these two have played this shtick for a long time. But when the movement happens, Bill suddenly puts his game face on, and the pulse rifle snaps up into place. And he gives the, the look and the signal to those behind him, puts his hand up in the air, and points in the direction of the movement to make certain everybody's aware that something is going on. Uh, the other Marines instantly follow your your instructions, although Ray can do whatever he wants. I'll uh, um, let them move ahead and kind of follow up, taking a rear position. Dr. Laura Angels would probably too loudly in a stage whisper, Remember, we need we need it alive. We need samples. What's going on? Did you see something? Ray, talk to me. Is there something going on? Shh, listen. I didn't see anything, but Bill, while Bill up there, he's got sharp eyes and he sees something. Those hand signals he was making, if you keep watching his hands, you'll see him signal to the others. And we know, because that's like a thing that we do, that uh, this is, uh, he's spotted something up in the trees, and then we're going to follow stealthily. And what happens then is that the center mushroom, uh, I described them as stacked mushrooms earlier. So the center fringe ah. of the mushroom, if that's what it was, 
uh, although it is very frond-like, it is green, it detaches from the central trunk of the tree. And you see that the, the trunk itself is kind of gray with a lot of strange extrusions, studs that come out that glisten a bit. The scientists among you see that that's probably some sort of sap that is collecting on these little stubby branches. And Dr. Laura, you realize immediately what your mistake has been. Uh, the mistake has been thinking that the fronds were actually tree limbs and needles and such, when in fact it was something that was feeding on the sap oozing out of those shortened branches. And as it flies off of the central trunk, the action seems to agitate the others in this little copse of trees, and about a dozen of these things take to the air. Oh, they're so beautiful! And pulls up the camera and starts snapping pictures. <laughs> oh, what do you think those are, Doc? Are they uh, insects or something? I do not know. Uh, it's, um, that, is, that is astonishing. We need one. Can I shoot it? Yes, bring one down. Oh, man, this is what I've been waiting for. <laughs> I always prefer them in life. So right now, they seem to be not overly antagonistic, so uh, there's no initiative or anything required. Uh, so go ahead, Bill, and roll. What kind of weaponry do you got there on you? Well, I've got myself a uh, standard issue M41A pulse rifle, locked and loaded, ready to go. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is use my fast action to aim, which gives me two extra dice on my ranged combat roll. And uh, let's see, it looks like I'm going to get two successes total on that. So, nice. Yeah, that's my slow action to actually shoot. And then what happened? I had two successes. That matches. That matches. Huh. And at that, all of the creatures, if that's what they are, Dr. Laura, your device is still not registering them as anything but plant-based. They turn as if in a flock, and all of these green, frond-like winged beasts or beings turn and start swooping down toward your party. And we're going to find out what happens in all three of our stories oh. next mm -hmm. time on The Gothic Podcast. Ooh. Oh, jeez. Oh, the Gothic Podcast is a humor and horror actual play podcast produced by C. Patrick Nagel, starring C. Patrick Nagel, Sharon Gallery Lafournaise, Jesse Baldwin, and Richard Southerd. Season 3 of the Gothic Podcast uses rules from the Alien RPG, produced by Free League Publishing and Monster of the Week, written by Michael Sands and published by Evil Hat Productions. Theme music is by Zoe Hovland and original artwork by Jared George Art. If you enjoy the Gothic Podcast, please like, rate, and review us on iTunes. Visit our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram feeds, and check out our Patreon page. Thanks! Crap, we're going to have to remember three different storylines each week? Yep. Damn it.